Good morning. Ohio gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Yukuni. Always, always a blessing to gather together as a church family and to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So glad to be here with you guys. Looking forward to all that God has in store for us. Uh, Before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children as well as our uh, Bible English class uh, to their respective areas. All right, and as they make their way out, will the rest of you please open up your Bible and make your way to Luke chapter 23, okay? Luke chapter 23, as we uh, continue to make our way through Luke's gospel account. Uh, Last week, we looked at verses 26 through 43 of chapter 23 in a message that I entitled, Witnesses of the Cross. In case you weren't with us, just give you a a review of all that we covered. In our study, we noted uh, several witnesses of the cross and what we could glean from them all. We noted the witness of Simon, the Cyrenian, and how his witness of the cross led to his salvation and the salvation of his family as well. How God can take uh, the worst of things and make them into something glorious and, and wonderful. We noted the witness of the women who mourned and lamented Christ and how Jesus warned them of worse days to come, how the city of Jerusalem and eventually the entire world would face the wrath of God for the rejection of his son. And the witness of the cross testifies to us that to reject Christ is to invite the wrath of God upon yourself. And when we looked at the criminals and them being lifted on the right hand and one on the left of Jesus, we were reminded of James and John and their request to be on Jesus' left and right-hand side when he entered into his kingdom and how we could be thankful for the times that God has said no to our prayers or not yet or be patient, uh, whatever uh, he may say as we feel like, man, we have our own plans and our own desires, but uh, God has something else in store. And that witness of the cross just reminded us that God knows what is best, right? And that he knows what he is doing. Um, We noted how the soldiers, how they acted in accordance with that which was prophesied about the Christ and his suffering, that all that was taking place was all part of God's glorious redemption plan for us. The witness of the crowd of people and the religious rulers let us know that salvation only comes through the completed work of the cross. You see, they wanted Jesus to save himself, but if he did so, then there would be no saving us. And so he would not save himself that he may offer to us salvation. We looked at the witness of Pilate the message that he wrote above Jesus Christ, that he was the king of the Jews, and how he wrote it in three different languages so that everyone that passed by would know who Jesus was. And the witness of the cross testified that the gospel message is for everyone. The witness of the criminals upon the cross revealed to us a couple of important truths. One was the immense love that God has for us. The work of the cross really was God's demonstration of his love for us. And then too, we noted, while it was not easy for Jesus, Jesus did make it simple for us to receive the gospel message for ourselves. But I think the most important witness was that of Christ himself that we looked at last week. When he uttered the words, Father, 
forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The witness of Christ upon the cross is that our sins can be forgiven. That Jesus went to the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and we can have a right standing before the Lord. What an amazing and glorious truth that is. It is the work of the cross and it is that work that it's all about forgiveness. It's about forgiveness for all those who would place their hope and faith in Christ. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 23 in the message, in a message that I've entitled, Responding to the Cross. Okay, We had witnesses of the cross, now we're going to have responding to the cross. And much like we did last week, we're going to look at a number of different people and events that took place, and we're going to note the response to the cross and what we can glean from them. So our text this morning is going to be Luke 23, verses 44 through 56. As is our custom, I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read uh, our text from my Bible. Uh, As many of you know, I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I just want to encourage you, do your best to follow along, okay? Luke continues his account of the crucifixion and the corresponding events that took place with the following in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, He glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. The opportunity that we have to just gather here, Lord, to hear from you, to allow your word to speak to us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would just be receptive to all that you desire to speak to us. Lord, I pray that um, you would have your way in us and through us this morning. We give you this time of study and um, ask that uh, your spirit would speak boldly and clearly to us, that we may leave this place having heard from you. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text this morning details for us the events that took place later in the day after Jesus' trials and that he, in his crucifixion, 
It includes details surrounding his death and his burial. From Mark's gospel, we know that it was the third hour of the day in which Jesus was crucified upon the cross of Calvary. Mark chapter 15, verse 25 tells us that. And we need to understand that the Jews count their hours based upon the setting and the rising of the sun. The sun would rise around 6 a.m., and that would be when they start counting the hours of the day. And so the third hour of the day would be around 9 a.m. when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross and lifted up between two criminals. Our text will pick up the details from the sixth hour onward up until Jesus' death and finally his burial. As we go through our account, we're going to note seven different responses to the cross. And as we do so, we'll note a few different lessons that we can learn from these various responses and how we can apply them to our own lives. And the first response that we're going to look at is nature's response. And it's found in verse 44 and the beginning of verse 45. So take another look at these verses again. It says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened. We'll stop right there. So our text opens up telling us that it was about the sixth hour. Again, the Jews count their hours from sunrise, so about the sixth hour would be about 12 o'clock noon, assuming the sun rose at around six o'clock in the morning. We're told that about the sixth hour, 12 noon, until the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon, that there was a darkness that covered over all the earth. Now, this darkness that fell upon the land was nature's response to the great atrocity that was taking place as the Son of God was being crucified for the sins of the world. Now, some have tried to explain this miracle as a solar eclipse, but a solar eclipse is insufficient to cast darkness upon all the earth for three hours. Solar eclipses last for minutes, not hours. Also, this is the Passover. Okay? And the Passover was celebrated on a full moon, and solar eclipses can only occur during a new moon when the moon passes between the earth and the sun. And so this was not a natural phenomenon okay, that occurred. This was a supernatural act. Okay? This was a supernatural darkness that came upon the land that should have reminded the people of another time darkness fell upon the land. You see, the feast that they are all gathered into Jerusalem to observe and celebrate was the feast of Passover. And Passover was a commemoration of the 10th and final plague that struck the land of Egypt. It was the death of the firstborn. And the only way the people could avoid death was to take the blood of a lamb and apply it to the crossbeams of the entrance to their dwelling places. But the ninth plague, okay, the plague that preceded the death of the firstborn and the blood of the lamb, was darkness. Okay, darkness fell upon the land for three days, Exodus chapter 10, verse 22 tells us. Here in our text, The Lamb of God is being offered up. His blood drips down the cross beams, and God's firstborn, His one and only Son, is about to taste death for us. 
You see, the parallelism between the darkness that preceded the Passover and the darkness that preceded the death of Jesus on the Passover is quite an amazing thing to consider. But there's more. You see, the darkness not only points to the Passover, I believe it also symbolizes for us the hour and power which Jesus alluded to the night prior to this. You see, when the chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders came out to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, this was God's way of using nature to proclaim the darkness of the religious leaders and their act of crucifying the Son of God. The religious leaders were filled with darkness and nature is portraying that darkness upon the entire land. You see, in this world, you are either in the light or you are in the dark. There are only two sides. Nature was testifying and proclaiming the religious leaders were in darkness. God, however, is light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 declares that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus himself proclaimed, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, you are either in the light are you, or you are in darkness. There is no middle ground. Either you follow Jesus and walk in the light, or you deny Jesus and walk in darkness. You are either for Christ or you are against him. And the choice, well, the choice is up to us. Whether we will walk in the light, following Jesus, or we will remain in darkness. And this, we see here, is nature's response. Well, Let's continue on in our account by looking at the rest of verse 45, where we will see God's response to Jesus' work upon the cross. There in verse 45, it says, Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil that is mentioned here is the veil that was hung within the temple in a very important place that is very rich with meaning and symbolism. The veil was used to divide the temple into two parts, the holy place and the most holy. On one side of the veil, uh, the side referred to as the holy place, would be the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. On the other side, the most holy would sit the Ark of the Covenant, or sometimes it's referred to as the Ark of the Testimony. The partition the veil created was extremely important. The most holy place, or sometimes it's called the Holy of Holies, was off limits to nearly everyone. Outside of Moses, only Aaron, and subsequent to him, those who served as high priest, were allowed to pass through this veil and enter into the most holy place. No one else was ever permitted to enter into the most holy place outside of these people. Added to this restriction was that there were only, excuse me, they were only permitted to enter into the most holy place one day out of the entire year. If they entered at any other time, they would do so under the penalty of death, according to Leviticus, Leviticus 16, verse 2. Okay. Now, 
both Mark and Matthew testify that the veil was torn into from top to bottom, which is very significant. Remember, the veil served as a barrier between the presence of the Lord and the people. In Herod's temple, the veil was said to be 60 feet in length, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick, and it reached from floor to ceiling. The fact that it was torn from top to bottom pictures for us that it was not torn from the hands of men from the ground up, but rather that God himself had reached down from on high and tore the veil from top to bottom. This was God's response to the cross. Okay? The veil, which had symbolized the barrier between man and God for over a thousand years, had been rent in two by God. A way had been made for sinful man to enter into the presence of God. No longer would entering into the presence of God be restricted to once a year for the high priest alone. You know, the book of Hebrews gives a lot of commentary on this topic about the veil. The author of Hebrews tells us that the veil was symbolic and that the tearing of the veil was a picture of Jesus Christ's body. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this in verses 19 through 22. It states, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, the law concerning the day of atonement, okay, that was the one day of year they were allowed to enter in, the high priest was allowed to enter in. On the day of atonement, they would enter into the most holy, and they would take blood, and they would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. All of these acts, they were shadows of things that were to come. Hebrews 10 tells us in verses 1 through 4, it says, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For if it is not for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see, the blood of bulls and goats that were sprinkled year after year after year, every time the Day of Atonement came by and they would sprinkle the blood again and again and again, that blood was not sufficient to take away the sins of the people. But the blood of the Lamb of God that was poured out upon the cross was more than sufficient. When his body was ripped apart upon the cross, so too was the veil. The old veil was just a shadow of the body of Christ. The torn veil pictured for us his broken body. Access to the presence of God is now made open to all because of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews tells us that we can now come boldly into the presence of God before his throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
You see, the blood of Christ has cleansed us. The veil has been torn. No longer is the most holy place for the high priest alone. Any person who believes upon the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross can boldly come into the presence of God at any time and in any place. The tearing of the veil was God's response to the cross, testifying to us that access to the presence of God has been granted to all through the broken body of Jesus Christ. Let's continue in our study. We'll see yet another response in verse 46. It says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. These are the final words Jesus would speak from the cross. And this was Jesus' response to the cross. And his response is twofold. Through this statement, we see that Jesus' response involved a willingness, okay? A willingness. Jesus committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. His spirit was not taken from him. Jesus willingly gave it up. The word commit in verse 46 is written in the middle voice, which some of you may not know what that means. But what that means is that it signifies that the subject of the verb is being affected by its own action. It's acting upon itself. This was not a passive act. This was not someone doing something to Jesus. This was Jesus doing this to himself. And this reminds us of what Jesus said in John's gospel, when he said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. You see, Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. But not only does this statement, this verse, speak of Jesus' willingness, but it also involved his obedience. His obedience. Jesus was obedient to the Father. It was God's will that Jesus would die in our place. When Jesus breathed his last and he died upon the cross, it was him being obedient to his Father's will. It was all part of God's great redemption plan for all of humanity, as we spoke of last week. Jesus was obedient to the Father in all things and especially in his death. Paul speaks of this obedience in the book of Philippians where he states how Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was willing to submit his will to the will of the Father, even if it meant losing his very life, which it did. And I think his example begs the question, how about us? Because Jesus sets here an example for us. Are are we willing to submit our will to God's will, even if it means great sacrifice? Even if it means going through pain and suffering? Even if it means that we may lose everything? Are we willing to still submit to God. Again, it was Paul who said 
But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. May we be willing to submit our will to God's will, no matter what it may cost us. May we, like Paul, count anything that is lost as rubbish that we may know Christ and that we may walk in the example that he left for us. Well, I said we would note seven different responses. We looked at the response of nature, the response of God, the response of Jesus. Now let's look at verse 47 and the response of the centurion. Okay, verse 47, it says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying... Certainly, this was a righteous man. We'll stop there. Here in verse 47, we read of the centurion's response to the cross. A centurion, many of you know, is a Roman military officer who had command over a hundred soldiers. There are mention of a few different centurions in Scripture. None of them are mentioned in a negative light. They're always spoken of in good light in the Gospels as well as in the book of Acts. This particular centurion saw what had happened. And the word saw is written as a participle in the form of a verb. And so literally speaking, the word speaks of how the centurion was continually seeing what was happening. Okay? It's this ongoing, continual process of him seeing everything. Okay? So he saw it all, and he took it all in. He was there for the arrest the night before. The religious trials Jesus went through, the civil trials that he experienced. He saw the scourging Jesus received, the mockery that was made of him. He saw the nails driven into his flesh. He saw him lifted up between two criminals. And he heard all the sayings Jesus uttered upon the cross. He felt the darkness that fell upon the land and the earthquake that Matthew tells us happened as well. He heard him cry out at the end of it all and breathe his very last breath. He took it all in and he responded by glorifying God. He declared, certainly this was a righteous man. But that isn't all he said. For Mark's gospel tells us that he also glorified God by declaring, truly, this man was the son of God. It is amazing to consider the fact that this Roman Gentile military officer was able to see more clearly who Jesus was than the religious leaders who were supposed to be God's representatives to the people. And as we consider the response of the centurion, I think it leads to this question. How do we respond to these things? 
You know, when we read the account of Jesus's crucifixion and the details surrounding this event, how do we respond? For most of us, hey, I imagine this is something we've heard many times before. Many times we've read of the crucifixion of Christ. Many times we've read of all of the surrounding details. And how do we respond to those details? Are we like the centurion? Do we glorify God? Do we glorify God by recognizing Him as the Son of God, as our Lord and Savior? Do we we glorify God in, in the words that we speak? Do we glorify God in the lives that we live? You know, my hope for us all is that we would bring glory to God by the way that we live our lives. That we would glorify Him in our words and in our actions. That people would see us and the way that we live our lives and they would glorify God as well. This is what Jesus wants for us. This is what He taught during His Sermon on the Mount. There in Matthew chapter 5, He said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the, uh, that's the goal, right? It's to glorify God. We want to glorify God in our lives, and we want to glorify Him in our lives so much that people would see us, and then they too would glorify God. May we glorify Him in all of our lives. May our lives lead others to glorify Him as well. Let's continue in our text. Looking at our next verse, verse 48, where we read of the crowd's response. It says, And the whole crowd who came together to that sight Seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. And so here we see the crowd that had gathered and remained throughout the entire day. When it was all said and done, and after Jesus died upon the cross, we're told that they beat their breast. Okay? The meaning of this act was that it was an act of extreme sorrow and anguish. Okay, it was an, actually an outward display of great mourning, perhaps indicating a sense of remorse for what had happened. Now, I do not believe this included many of the religious leaders, but probably speaks of the crowd of people that the religious leaders had stirred up. Remember a few weeks ago, it was the religious leaders that stirred up the people and they persuaded the people to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus. We get the sense that perhaps after taking in everything, as they too saw everything, that it had an impact upon them as it did the centurion. Now, we can't say with certainty whether or not this remorse and sorrow was was genuine or not. We can't say with certainty that it led to salvation, but it is possible For later on in the book of Acts, some 50 days after these events uh, described here, uh, on the day of Pentecost, we're told about how some 3,000 souls were saved. And then just a few days later, we read in Acts chapter 4 about another 5,000 who believed the word of Peter and James as they testified of the Christ. Perhaps some of those converted on the day of Pentecost and the days following were some of the people spoken of here in our text who beat their breast in mourning, realizing, man, they had blown it. 
Again, we, we can't say with certainty. What we do know, though, is this, that the Scriptures speak of the fact that there are two different types of sorrow. Okay? There is godly sorrow, which produces repentance, leading to salvation, and then there is the sorrow of the world, which produces death, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. One leads to life and salvation, the other to death. And so it's very important that we have the right kind of sorrow. It really is a life or death situation. Worldly sorrow can usually be characterized by the kind of sorrow one feels after being caught up in some sort of sin. People are sorry, not because their actions were sinful or that their actions were an offense to God, but because they got caught and because they're having to deal with the consequences and the repercussions of their sin and it being exposed. This kind of sorrow will only lead to death. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, will lead us to a place of repentance, even before being caught. It is the result of God's Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and us responding to that conviction and confessing our sin and our sin being exposed by ourselves. You see, in both situations, the sin is eventually exposed and brought out into the light. God will always do this. He will not allow us to continue in sin for too long before he eventually brings it out. And the question is, will it be God's prompting us through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that leads to our sin being exposed? Or will it be God's hand of discipline, lovingly exposing our sin despite our efforts to keep it hidden? Because the difference between the two is huge. May we be those who are moved with godly sorrow, which produces repentance, leading to salvation, and not those who shamefully sorrow like the world because our hidden sin has been exposed. Perhaps this crowd that departed the scene of the cross did so with godly sorrow that led to repentance and their salvation. Maybe they were part of the group of people that got saved on the day of Pentecost. We don't know. Or it could have been that this was nothing more than worldly sorrow. That only affected them externally, but had no inward change upon their life. Whether it was one or the other, whether they eventually got saved or or remained in their sin, I I cannot say with certainty. And for us, I I don't think it really is all that important whether or not they had godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Because the most important thing is not how they responded, but how each of us have responded. When we stand before the Lord, okay, we're not going to be asking, those people that beat their breasts, was that genuine sorrow? He's going to say, I don't care about them. I care about you. How have you responded? Have we responded with godly sorrow over our sin that produced repentance in us leading to salvation? Or are we still lost in our sin? This is the point that we need to pull out here. This is what's most important. This is what it really is all about. It's about us 
having our sins forgiven. It's about us bringing those sins before the Lord and allowing Him to work uh, in those situations. Lord, help us. Well, let's continue in our text, and we're going to note yet another response, this time looking at the response of the women in verse 49, and then we're actually going to jump down to verse 55 and 56 as well. So read these verses with me again in verse 49. It says, but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jump down to verse 55. It says, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. In these verses, we hear of a certain group of women and their response to the cross. We're told that they stood at a distance from the cross. Uh, This is later in the afternoon as Jesus took his last breath. John's gospel describes to us how they had been really at the foot of the cross earlier in the afternoon. In John 19, 25, we're told how they stood by the cross of Jesus, and that's when Jesus interacted and spoke with John and his mother Mary, and he basically said, hey, behold your mother, behold your son, and he basically said, John, you need to take care of my mom for me. My loose paraphrase of that. (laughs) Though Luke does not give us any of the names of these women, the other gospel accounts list a few of the names. John's gospel tells us this group included Jesus' mother, Mary, um, Jesus' aunt, who was also named Mary, and she was the wife of a man named Clopas, and yet another Mary who was known as Mary Magdalene. Mark's gospel identified the same Mary Magdalene, and then Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and Salome. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us that the mother of Zebedee's sons was present as well. Now, Mark's list and Matthew's list both mention three women. Mark lists Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and Salome. Well, Matthew mentions the same two Marys, but instead of saying Salome, he simply says that it was the mother of Zebedee's sons. And so this has led people to believe that Salome and the mother of Zebedee's sons is one and the same person. Okay? Uh, these are not complete lists, for we know that Mark's gospel tells us that there were many other women who came up with Jesus to Jerusalem. And so this is a, a very significant size a group of women that had stayed there and saw everything that was taking place. And the main point that I want to draw your attention to about these women was what's written about them regarding their desire to follow Jesus. You see, wherever Jesus went, these women followed. In verse 49 of our text, it says that these women followed Jesus from Galilee. Mark's gospel tells us that they followed Jesus to Jerusalem. John's gospel tells us that they followed Jesus to the cross. And in verse 55, we see that they followed Jesus to the tomb. You see, truly these women were followers of Christ. They followed him wherever he went. And their focus and their desire was to simply follow him wherever he may lead. No matter where he went, these women were following thereafter. You know, Jesus said in John's gospel, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In Mark's gospel, Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
And that is exactly what these women did. They denied themselves and they followed after Jesus wherever he went. From Galilee to Jerusalem, from the cross to the grave, these women were there for it all. And they leave for us a wonderful example of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That we too would be willing to go wherever Jesus would lead and that we would follow. Well, let's take a look at our final response for us this morning. It's the response of a man named Joseph found in verses 50 through 54. Read along with me. It says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. We'll stop there. Before looking at Joseph's response, excuse me, we are given uh, some background information about this man Joseph in verses 50 and 51. Uh, the first thing that Luke mentions is that this Joseph was a council member. Now, this is in reference to him being part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Remember that Jesus' third and final religious trial was before the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was a, a ruling body, a religious ruling body over the Jewish population that consisted of 70 members and one high priest, 71 in total. This Joseph was one of those 70 members. Okay? Next, we're told that Joseph was a good and just man. Now, this does not mean that he was perfect but simply that he was one who faithfully followed after the law. He was seen as blameless based upon his keeping of the law and the making of the sacrifices. Really, this speaks of Joseph's integrity. He was a good man, a a just man, a man that was well-respected amongst his peers and within the society. After this, we're given a bit of information regarding that third religious trial and his part in it. We're told that he had not consented to the decision of the Sanhedrin and their acts against Jesus. Now, this is an interesting bit of information. For Mark's gospel tells us that all condemned him to be deserving of death during that third religious trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Yet here we read that Joseph did not consent. And so either Mark speaks of the collective group as one, meaning that the group's decision was to condemn him, Or it could be that not all the members of the Sanhedrin were present when they made their decision, okay? That Joseph was either not there to cast a negative vote, or perhaps that he simply remained silent and abstained from voting, okay? We can't say uh, with certainty. All we know for sure was that he was not in agreement with his fellow Sanhedrin members when it came to Jesus Christ. We're told where Joseph came from, that he was from Arimathea, uh, which was a city of the Jews. Uh, Where this city is actually located, scholars do not agree. Most associate it with the Old Testament town of Ramah, of Ephraim, that's spoken of throughout the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. But again, scholars differ. And then the last bit of background information given to us is that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. But 
we might read that and think to ourselves, well, what is that really telling us? What does that mean that he's waiting for the kingdom of God? Aren't all the Jews waiting for the kingdom of God? You know, aren't they all wanting their Messiah to come and establish the kingdom? And so how does this really uh, distinguish him uh, from everyone else? We have to understand that what Luke alludes to is the fact that Joseph of Arimathea was a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. When Luke writes that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God, it is in reference to the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching about, not the kingdom of God that the mass population of the Jews were hoping for. And we know that Joseph was a true believer based upon the other gospel accounts. Because Matthew's gospel tells us very plainly that he was a disciple of Jesus. And John's gospel tells us that his discipleship was a secret because he feared the Jews. And so Joseph was a disciple of Jesus's, but not openly out of fear of what other Jews may say or do to him if they found out about his allegiance to Christ. And so, with that background information uh, understood, we can turn our attention to Joseph's response in verses 52 through 54. And I want to note, real simply, three aspects of Joseph's response and what it involved. Number one, we see that Joseph's response involved courage. Okay, it involved courage. In verse 52, Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us specifically that Joseph took courage in coming before Pilate. Now, this coming before Pilate was not the courageous thing, okay? Uh, As a ruler within the Sanhedrin, it would not be uncommon for Joseph to come before Pilate to speak about official matters, okay? So it didn't take a great amount of courage just to, you know, come before Pilate in his presence, okay? He probably has done that many times before, okay? No, the courage that was displayed was Joseph finally stepping out of the shadows and publicly acknowledging his devotion and his allegiance to Jesus Christ. By coming forward and requesting the body of Jesus, Joseph was risking everything that his life was built upon as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, You see, identifying with Christ would most certainly get him ostracized and it would cause the group to remove him as a member of the Sanhedrin. And, you know, having a seat within the Sanhedrin was a great honor. It was like the sign of your arrival, okay? Like, wow, you are, you know, part of the elite, right? Something greatly revered and sought after. And yet, in coming before Pilate, Joseph was basically throwing all that away in order to care for his Lord and Savior's broken body. Which leads me to the second thing I want to note about Joseph's response, and that is that his response involved compassion. Okay, compassion. In verse 53, we read of how Joseph himself took the body of Jesus down from the cross. And we can kind of read that and and not give much thought to that, but we have to understand what that would entail for Joseph of Arimathea. And that meant he would have to procure some sort of hammer-like utensil, a pry bar of some kind to pry out the nails that had been driven into his hands and the nail that pierced his feet. Jesus's body would be covered and soaked with blood, and and that blood would just 
cover Joseph as well as he would reach up and take that body down from the cross. Joseph carefully and delicately removed the body of Jesus from the cross, and then he took the body, and we're told that he wrapped it in linen. This was a, a, the customary way for the Jews to prepare bodies for burial. John's gospel actually tells us that he had some help in doing this. For Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to Jesus under the cover of night in John chapter 3, Okay, we also hear, we also see in John 19, verse 39, that Nicodemus was there as well to help wrap and anoint the body of Jesus. And perhaps it was Joseph's boldness and his courage of coming before Pilate and no longer secretly following the Lord that perhaps gave Nicodemus that push that he needed to come forth as well. The third aspect of Joseph's response was that it involved charity, okay, that it involved charity. In verse 53, we read of how Joseph laid Jesus in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. But what we're not told here in Luke's gospel, we are told about in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel tells us that this new tomb was actually Joseph's own tomb that it was his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 60. This sort of tomb just outside the city walls of Jerusalem in a beautiful garden was a very costly tomb. And in laying Jesus' body within this tomb, Joseph fulfilled the prophecies concerning Jesus that are found in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse 9 states, And they made his grave with the wicked, speaking of his death upon the cross between two criminals, but with the rich at his death, speaking of his burial in Joseph's tomb, a place that would only be for those who were affluent and, and rich to be able to afford a tomb in, in a beautiful garden just outside the city walls. For it says, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And the picture that this creates is a beautiful one, you guys. Joseph, he surrenders his temporal life, his social standing, everything he had built up. He surrenders that and his burial place where he would have been laid in exchange for eternal life, in exchange for a place in heaven with Jesus. And Joseph made a very wise decision. It was a great exchange. He, he got a great deal one I'm sure that he never regretted.